a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Whether you're a first-time listener, long-time listener, freedom-curious, whatever the case may be, I welcome you to uh, the show, whether it be the live broadcast or the podcast. And uh, thanks, thanks for taking some time to think outside the box. I don't know if I don't know if anybody really wants to be complimented on that or thanked for uh, considering something outside of you know the, the mainstream. But man, there are a lot of voices out there, and there are a lot of voices with very worthwhile messages. But there's an awful lot of uh, narrative. And spin that has to be countered. And, uh, you know, in a nutshell, if, you, if you're tuning in for the first time, I try to get people to, of their own choice, challenge the narrative. Now, I'm going to try to persuade you that, hey, the, here are some of the reasons why you may want to question, you know, what, what officially you are supposed to believe, what you're supposed to think, how you're supposed to feel. And my goal here isn't to cause you discomfort, but simply to help... Uh, those who are looking to become more aware of what's going on become more aware, as well as to realize that uh, as crazy as things get, as hopeless as it may seem from from some angles, um, we're going to be OK. This is this is uh, there is a great opportunity that is put before us right now in that I think most people, even people who are really trying hard not to see what's going on, uh, the ones who would rather be like in a cave somewhere with their eyes shut, their hands over their ears. Ah, there's nothing bad happening, <laughs> especially, you know, to our culture or, you know, our, our political body. You know, it's we all can feel it. And even if you don't attach necessarily even a political uh, label to it, there's just a sense of, ooh, something here doesn't feel right. And, and there's probably a sensation, too. I don't think I'm the only one feeling this, that uh, whatever's happening is picking up speed. Gravity is taking hold. I don't know what, but we are definitely seeing things happen faster. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want to regale you with, you know, here's the latest horror and bloodshed and, you know, these are the things you should be angry about. That doesn't work for me in the sense that, uh, you know, I can I can get you riled up if that's if that's what you're looking for. But I'd rather that we actually see things clearly, including those things that maybe aren't as pleasant as what we'd like them to be and understand that we still have options. That's how important it is that uh, that you own your own worldview, that you you own your autonomy, your willingness to be free. Um, you know, I don't know why this is like some kept secret from the ages and only a very few ever discover this truth. But the truth of the matter is freedom doesn't perpetuate itself. It never lasts longer than than a generation that's just not willing to take care of it. Sometimes it will stay for several generations. Sometimes it goes very quickly. But it is not a maintenance-free state of being. And the people who want to be free are the kind of people who have to qualify for it. And, and I don't mean to make it sound like it's a big exclusive club, you know, like, like we currently have seen operates, you know, between big tech and big government and, you know, the, the moneyed interests. Yeah, there's, there's clearly, a, you know, 
there's quite the country club atmosphere and there's quite a, a difference between the uh, the elite and the rest of us. Now, that would be OK in the sense of, you know, if look, if they're just if they're just better, you know, if it's a if it's an association of pro golfers. Sure. I'm not going to count myself as well. Gee, I need to be I need to be right there in their midst. I'm not a pro golfer. I'm not even a golfer for that matter. But the people who are enjoying this elite benefit to this membership in the inner circle, if you will, of things that are happening in the world have captured most of our systems of governance. And and I I'm not using that word captured lightly. They they have found a way to exert influence and control. And this is true right into, you know, corporate America. It's true. You see it in our churches. You see it in the media, definitely in academia. And they are they're very good at uh, they're very good at profiting and and uh, taking advantage of the taxpayers, the people, the productive people who are out there actually trying to make things happen. Good things, you know, grow prosperity, live and pursue happiness. What you know, whatever. And it's tough to talk about this without describing a divide. I, um, my friend Steve messaged me this morning and I, I had shared an article from Thomas Luongo in another hour of the show. Uh, talking about, uh, you know, the it's no longer the red versus the blue. It's a uniparty versus the rest of us. And I don't I don't know how to describe this because I, I'm really not trying to get people separated into tribes and teams. And, you know, you over there and you over there now fight. Um, I'm just trying to, to separate it into the schools of thought more than anything. And on one hand, you've got people who stand for the rights of the individual who recognize um, natural rights. Rights that exist before government exists and which limit government's power over us and make sure that it is only used in uh, in purposes that are consistent with protecting those rights and defending those rights. And on the other hand. You have the collective. Which is it can it can take many different uh, you know, many different types of, of forms, but at its at its absolute most authoritarian sliding into totalitarian, it becomes very, very dangerous. Marxism, Jacobism, Nazism are just three of the labels that have come down through history of people who became so convinced that whatever they wanted, whatever the majority wanted, that it, they could do no wrong. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, uh, you know, these are these are the movements that slaughtered people by the millions. Well, as as technology improved, you know, and as, as their ability to monitor people improved. It's a really dangerous place to go. And and I see it happening. And, and this is for me, this is one of the most disturbing things. And again, I'm not trying to play to your fears, but I'm acknowledging something here that it's it's disturbing to see. How the response to the coronavirus, if you think about what life was like just a year ago, all the things that we took for granted that were just, yeah, 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 we've got our problems. But, you know, those problems seem pretty minor by comparison to what life is like right now. With the ubiquitous masks, with all the different mandates. I mean, come on, it started two weeks. We're going to flatten the curve for two weeks. And then it turned into masks for everyone. Social distance. We got to lock down. We got to shut down this for everybody's safety. Stop the spread. Now it's everybody has to get vaccinated. Where does this end? 
I, I'm just I'm seeing the goalposts being moved over and over again. And look, what you deem is best in protecting your health. I just want you to know I support that. But here's where I draw the line. I can't support someone who would deny me the ability to make those same choices for myself and would turn around and and use government force to try to force me or my family to do those things. It's not within the proper purview of government in the first place, and it's an abuse of government force. It, it creates criminals where there were none, where there is no malicious intent, where the state doesn't even need to be interfering. And that's where I see us standing right now. We're at that crossroads. So here's the deal. When we come back from the break here in just a moment, I want to share with you an article by John Tamney. This was published on the American Institute for Economic Research website. This is one of my go-to sources when I want to get a feel for what is happening in terms of for what we now know about coronavirus, what we know about COVID, and also what we know about some of the unintended consequences that have attended all of the official COVID response. John Tamney takes us through a scenario and says, imagine if the virus had never been detected. And I know this is okay. So he's operating on something here that's just purely imaginary. But but imagine this. He says, among those who've watched the tragic and needless lockdowns unfold over the last 11 months, a frequent question has come up. What if the coronavirus had spread, but had never been diagnosed or detected? Would life have been any different absent the discovery of what has caused a massive global panic among politicians? Now, John Tamney says, look, that's not an unreasonable question. Really, ask yourself what politicians and nail-biting media members would have done a hundred years ago if the virus had revealed itself. Since work was a destination for realistically everyone, there's no way that there could have been lockdowns. People would have revolted. Now, I'm going to come back to this article here in a few minutes. Again, this is from John Tamney, and I will point out as well that you will find this in the show notes complete with links and lots of other good articles that you might consider reading if you are so inclined. Go to the thebrianheidshow.com. These are the show notes for February 5th, 2021. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. Is the Brian Hyde Show? This is the Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing this article from John Tamney. Imagine if the virus had never been detected, never been diagnosed, and actually had spread throughout society. You know, just uh, as as viruses do. Now, there's a point to this. We'll get to it in just a moment. Um, something he's going to suggest, and I think this is probably closer to the truth, is that COVID arrived in America much, much earlier than February or March of last year. So before we get there, I want to quickly mention Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also Monticello College and Rio del Sion Home Lots. These are my sponsors. They are wonderful people. They have terrific products and or services. And in the case of Rion del Sion Home Lots, a beautiful place to live. 
I would encourage you to please visit their links. The contact links are in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. If you have a moment, drop them a note. Let them know. Hey, my their message reached your ears. Let them know that, uh, that the message is, is getting out there. So back to imagining if the virus had revealed itself a hundred years ago, or if there would, would there have been lockdowns, John Tamney asks, you know, because people really had to get to work. He says, in fact, people would have revolted. But he says, remember, a hundred years ago, as for deaths, life expectancy was already relatively low in the 1920s. And that's relevant because when it's remembered that the coronavirus in a death sense has largely been associated with, with nursing homes, those homes weren't very common a hundred years ago. And they weren't mainly because pneumonia, tuberculosis, and other major killers had a tendency to get to us long before we reached old age. Translated, there likely weren't enough old people in the 1920s for the virus to have had any kind of lethal impact. Due to a lack of old people, the virus perhaps wouldn't even have been discovered in the first place. Think about it. Now, as John Tamney has stated before, he says the coronavirus is a rich man's virus. It's not just that the rich and generally well-to-do had portable jobs that mostly survived the mindless lockdowns. It's not just that the break from reality we were forced to endure could only have happened in a rich country. It's also the case that only in a country and world in which the elderly are truly old would the virus have any notable association with death. People live longer today and they do because major health care advances born of wealth creation made living longer possible. He says we wouldn't have noticed this virus a hundred years ago. We weren't rich enough. Which brings us to the recent article by Leah Rosenbaum at Forbes. Now, she wrote about a National Institutes of Health paper indicating that almost 17 million coronavirus cases went uncounted last summer. In Rosenbaum's words, this discovery suggests the pandemic was much more widespread in the U.S. than previously thought. To which John Tamney responds, well, of course. Lest readers forget, the virus began spreading sometime in the fall of 2019, if not sooner. The epicenter is, epicenter rather, is widely thought to have been China, and flights between the U.S. and China, along with flights from China to the rest of the world, were rather numerous right up until 2020. Considering how connected China was and still is to the rest of the world, he says logic dictates that the virus was infecting people globally long before politicians panicked. In that case, it's not too surprising that estimates made about the number of infected Americans were always way too low. The virus is said to spread easily, even easier than the flu, and it once again started working its way around the world sometime in 2019. He says notable about its rapid spread is that life went on as it made its way around the world. As the closing months of 2019 make plain, people lived with the virus. Now, what is most lethal to older people isn't much noticed by those who aren't old. A rapidly spreading virus was seemingly not much of a factor until politicians needlessly made it one. Indeed, he says a virus most lethal to the very old has meek qualities when met by younger people. If they're infected with it, all too many don't find the symptoms worrisome enough that they actually get tested. That's what Rosenbaum's report seems to indicate. The National Institute of Health study covered blood tests of 11,000 Americans who hadn't been previously diagnosed with COVID-19. Of the participants, 4.6% had COVID-19 antibodies, but their actual infection phase was never apparent to them. This is what Hallman Jenkins has been pointing out all along. The number of those infected 
has always well exceeded estimates precisely because the symptoms of infection haven't been worth going to the doctor over for the vast majority of those infected. He says, looking back 100 years again, ask yourself how many would have consulted a doctor then if something resembling the coronavirus had been spreading? Or better yet, ask yourself how many would have been tested in a U.S. that was quite a bit poorer relative to today? The questions answer themselves. The virus would have spread rapidly within a younger population in the 1920s and infected people would have developed immunity. From Rosenbaum's report, he says it's not unreasonable to speculate that far more Americans are immune to the virus than is known and that the best approach all along would have been freedom. Let people live their lives. More important, let them get infected. For centuries, they're pers- they've, they're pers- they've pursued uh, immunity, rather, by infecting one another. John Tamney says, so what would have happened if the coronavirus had gone undetected? We will never know. But it's not unrealistic to conclude that we have an idea. Because the virus didn't suddenly start spreading in March of 2020 just because politicians decided it had. The likelier beginning is 2019, early 2022. Life was pretty normal as a virus made its way around the world then. Politicians made it abnormal. And he says, let's never forget the sickening carnage they can create when they find reasons to do something. I don't know. Maybe you can see why I I really like, uh, I like the take of so many of these writers from the American Economic Institute for Economic Research. And and I know you probably think, well, of course you like it, Brian. They, they agree with you. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. I just think they construct a very sound argument <clears throat> that, we, that we didn't have to take it the way that we did, that it didn't have to go into overreaction, that politicians didn't have to control and lock everything down because that's the only language they understand. It's the only option they chose to see. Maybe I just love to see people who can say that so much more eloquently than I can. By the way, there's another aspect of this, too, and this this has been very curious to see. Um, COVID has been politicized in, in a whole bunch of different ways, but few of them are as apparent as the way that teachers' unions are responding to the coronavirus. Kerry McDonald has a story about how teachers unions continue to block schools from opening across America. This one hits this, this hits close to home for me because my wife is a public school teacher. And I watched as she had to adapt to, you know, doing class online and 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 how she's had to adapt to, you know, having conferences with her students, you know, by Zoom or by by some other, you know, online method. But I've also seen very clearly she and her fellow teachers, they they understand there's risk, but that risk isn't from the kids. It's not like, oh, the kids are carrying coronavirus everywhere they go. They've been anxious to get back to the classroom, anxious to teach them. And they've had to do so under, you know, sometimes bizarre and contradictory kind of dictates. They have to wear one mask, two masks can only sit this far apart. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of precautions that have been implemented. Maybe some of them are actually, you know, having the intended effect. Some of them, well, let's just say that, uh, you know, people struggle to try to adapt. <clears throat> but I contrast their point of view or their their eagerness. These teachers, you know, my wife and, and her colleagues who have been 
anxious to get back to school. And by the way, they have seen people within their ranks, you know, be diagnosed with COVID. Some have had, you know, a bad time of it, and some of them had very minor symptoms. It, it hasn't spared that part of the population. But I don't understand these teachers unions, particularly. I think Chicago is one of the real hot spots for this. They don't want to go back to school. And I don't think it has anything to do with safety so much as it has to do with, look at us. We are flexing our political muscle and making sure you know, you know, we are in charge. Which to me seems a little bit incongruent with uh, what they're supposed to stand for. Okay, we'll come back. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. A great essay from Carrie McDonald from the Foundation for Economic Education. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome back to the show. Let's jump in here. This is an article by Carrie McDonald. She is with the Foundation for Economic Education. She's also one of my favorite people on the subject of education. Just has some great, innovative, very freedom and free market oriented ideas. And she's a cool person besides. So, you know, on all of these criteria, I would encourage you, give what she has to say some consideration. But, uh, you know, the fact she's a great person on top of it, well, that's just, you know, that's another reason. She's one of those voices that I think actually makes the world a better place for the, for the understanding that she promotes. Now, she's talking in this article about how teachers unions continue to block school reopenings across America. And Carrie says, as district school closures enter their 11th month, many parents are frustrated and angry. They may see private schools that have been open for in-person learning since the start of the academic year and wonder why their children are forced to endure remote schooling indefinitely. They may ask why in some parts of the country, district uh, in the country, district schools have been open for in-person learning for months. And to a large degree, she says the answer lies in the power and influence of local teachers unions to determine whether or not schools reopen for in-person classes. Case in point, district schools in Montclair, New Jersey, located just outside New York City, have been closed for in-person learning since the spring. And they may remain closed until next year as recent negotiations with the area's most powerful teachers union broke down. Montclair Education Association demanded additional school funding and costly safety measures before they would even agree to a hybrid model of reopening with part-time student attendance. A representative from the statewide New Jersey Teachers Union, which supports the Montclair Union's actions, told the New York Times everyone should accept interruptions in learning for maybe another year. Now, when the Montclair School District ordered teachers to return for classes late last month, the teachers union pressured their members not to go to work, causing the school district to cancel its reopening plans. Earlier this week, the school district announced that it's suing the teachers union over its practices. And Carrie McDonald reports that a similar story has emerged in Chicago, where in-person schooling plans continue to be delayed this week due to the Chicago teachers union blocking the reopening. According to the Chicago Tribune, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot had expected district schools to reopen on Monday for the 60,000 elementary school students who had registered to return for in-person classes. But the mayor had to cancel those plans when the teachers' union resisted. 
The Chicago's teachers union, she writes, made headlines in December when it tweeted that the push to reopen schools is rooted in sexism, racism and misogyny. Now, the union later deleted that tweet, but it wasn't the first time the Chicago's teachers union had raised eyebrows on social media. In August, the union responded to a video of a faux guillotine placed in front of Amazon founder and CEO Jeff Bezos' house, tweeting, We are completely frightened by, completely impressed by, and completely in support of wherever this is headed. Hashtag solidarity. I'm sorry. I, I'm still just kind of sitting here in shock going, really? Someone in, in an official position actually tweeted that. Wow. Okay. In San Francisco, Kerry writes, the teachers union is demanding, among other things, lids on all school toilets as a condition of reopening, even though no COVID cases have been linked to toilets. These actions suggest that science isn't always the driving force behind union demands. Kerry says teacher union clout determines the reopenings. And this is where I wonder if the light is going on for some parents. Look, I... I know a lot of parents who who have really become serious about, look, I am not going to subject my kids to what the teachers unions um, stand for. And I'm not an expert myself on teachers unions, but I have definitely paid enough attention to the National Education Association and even the teachers union in the various states where I have lived to understand that by and large, and particularly the NEA, they have a very, very clear agenda that has almost nothing to do with anything that uh, that people traditionally would have expected a teacher's union to, to be involved with. I mean, it's, it's lots of LGBT advocacy and trans awareness. And basically, there's a very social justice flavor, which means that a lot of mischief can come in on the backs of some of these teachers unions. When you hear about what what were they focusing on? What were the the speakers speaking on at their convention? And some of the subjects, you, you just, you'd shake your head and say, what does this have to do with educating our kids? It's not about educating the kids. It's about implanting in them a mindset for a familiarity with certain progressive or in some cases really radical left-wing talking points. It's not like the kids aren't going to encounter these, encounter these throughout their life, but when you're in school, you're kind of a captive audience. I mean, you're you're in a place that uh, refers to the amount of time you're going to spend. There is a term, right, that can go into lockdown, you know, with with little to no notice (laughs) that may or may not have metal detectors and armed guards and fencing all around. I'm just saying. Schools don't uh, look or feel quite the same as as they did when uh, you and I were kids. Back to Kerry's article. According to data analyzed by Education Next, more than half of all U.S. students are fully remote this year. Only about a quarter are fully in person, with the remaining students in some type of hybrid setup. Millions of school children haven't been inside a classroom since last March. And Kerry says it's become increasingly clear that the remote schooling experience has led to dismal results for many students. Yet their schools remain closed despite research showing that schools aren't super spreaders and that they can reopen safely for students and teachers alike. The U.S. has been alone in its widespread and ongoing school closures. Why is this, she asks. Kerry says the correlation between ongoing school closures and local teacher union influence is hard to ignore. Research by Corey DeAngelis of the Reason Foundation and Christos Macridis of the of Arizona State University revealed that the schools were likely to remain closed for in-person learning 
in areas where teachers unions are particularly powerful. In fact, continued school closures were unrelated to COVID-19 risk in terms of cases and deaths in the school district's county. They concluded that reopening decisions have more to do with influence from teachers unions than safety concerns. Another paper by researchers at Brown University found a similar correlation between teacher union strength and school reopening plans. Like any government sector labor union, teachers unions are primarily concerned with protecting the jobs of their members while securing higher pay and benefits. But by pushing hard to keep schools closed, they may be accelerating their own demise and turning parents and taxpayers steadily away from public schools. This academic year, she says there has been an exodus of children from district schools toward private schools and independent homeschooling. According to the Associated Press and Chalkbeat, public school enrollment has declined in 33 states this school year as parents switch to private education options. Homeschooling, she says, has more than doubled during the pandemic, and many private schools are seeing surging enrollments. Some families are also turning to high-quality, privately-run online learning programs rather than continue with their district's often lower-quality remote schooling. Unlike district schools, private schools have been much more likely to open for in-person learning. According to Education Next data, 60% of private school students are attending school in person, and only 18% of private school students are learning remotely. For students in public schools, those percentages are flipped. While their enrollment has been steadily declining over the past several years, she says Catholic schools have seen renewed interest in the, during the pandemic and are safely and successfully meeting parent demand for in-person learning. And while it may be uh, rooted in, uh, in resentment, at least there's, an, there's a comment here from uh, uh, Boston's Catholics about co- Boston's Catholic schools gaining students. Uh, journal columnist William McGurn says, just as significant Catholic schools prove you can keep classrooms open while keeping COVID-19 at bay, which gave teachers unions another reason to resent them. Whoops. Could it be some competition creeping in? Carrie says, while it may be rooted in resentment, the competition that public schools are experiencing from open private schools is having an impact on their behavior. The Brown researchers who revealed a correlation between teacher union strength and school reopenings also found that districts with competition from a large number of Catholic schools in the same area were more likely to remain open for in-person learning or to reopen than district schools in areas without such competition. She talks about growing support for parental choice in education, and uh, I'm gonna I'm just gonna ask you to please check out the rest of this uh, in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Carrie's point here is that the longer schools stay closed and teachers unions squabble with district administrators over reopening plans, the more parents will pull their children out of district schools for better options. There may be some of you within the sound of my voice who are considering this right now because of what you are seeing, depending on where you live. And for those who find yourself in this position, can I just suggest trust yourself? I think you have the ultimate authority, you know, second only to God's when it comes to doing what's right for your children. And you should take that seriously. At the same time, I would encourage those of you who are already engaged in private schooling, homeschooling, unschooling, all of the various alternatives. When you see someone who is taking those first tentative steps, be there for them. Be a resource and help them find their footing.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I would ask you, please check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You can subscribe to the podcast if you're a person who has, you know, time on your hands. Maybe you have a commute. We've got the show uh, ready for podcast, ready to be listened to on your terms when it's convenient for you. Or, of course, you can catch it streaming live on great networks like Fed by Ravens Media or the Loving Liberty Radio Network or Liberty News Radio. And there are many, many others. And I'm sorry I'm not mentioning everybody, um, but... Thank you for for helping get the word out that there there are some alternative ways of approaching what's going on. And I hope this is one of the productive ones. Now, having said that, tongue firmly in cheek, I want to share with you. This is a post from uh, Isaac Morehouse, one of the founders of Praxis and one of my favorite people, because I love how much information he puts into a very short couple of paragraphs here. Attention, citizens. Remember and rely on your programming. Your job is to take all new information and integrate it into the dominant narrative immediately and without question or delay. The narrative must be preserved and protected at all costs. You must subjugate your sanity, critical thinking, curiosity, comfort, I'm sorry, discomfort, prosperity, individuality, and ability to navigate the world and avoid pain to the dominant narrative. It subsumes all. You will be informed when the narrative changes, and you must then reject your old narrative justifications and replace them with new ones without question or delay. Signed, the authoritative high council of the authoritative council rather of high narrative logic. I'm sorry, that is uh, that's pretty good stuff, and that's exactly why programs like this and networks like the ones that I'm on exist, and that is to challenge that narrative. And to at least raise some questions that if, if they don't necessarily, you know, lead you exactly to the truth, at least get you moving in the direction where you can discover it for yourself. I don't know, maybe maybe it sounds too conspiratorial to suggest that uh, that much of what comes to us through mass media is a narrative. It's a story that we are told and we are instructed on what to believe. By the way, one of the biggest examples of this. The narrative is no one may question what happened in the election, you know, last year. And, you know, look, I don't purport to know exactly what happened. Like a lot of people, I do find it interesting that in five states, five key swing states, they stopped counting all at the same time. There's nothing suspicious about that, mind you. I mean, I can't prove anything, but doesn't that merit a closer look? Doesn't that seem just a little bit uh, curious? Some deeper questions could be asked, and, and the people who hide behind the, the sophistry and the, the rhetoric of, well, you know, the, the courts rejected this this many times, they never gave it an honest hearing. In the one case where they did, which was in Pennsylvania, they actually found in favor of Trump's side. But the point is, I don't know. I don't know if the election was stolen. I can think of a lot of reasons that uh, that those who really wanted Trump out of office would do anything. And in fact, I saw I saw a thing today. It's uh, this is in Time magazine, the secret bipartisan plan. To to uh, win the 2020 election, I think this is uh, 
multiple this the secret history of the shadow campaign that saved the 2020 election it's this is the equivalent of oj simpson's if i did it <laughs> it's it's uh, if this was written by the uh, the establishment and and the different groups and it's fascinating the amount of work that went into it and look it's not a crime if you do it legally, but I'm telling you, there was so much manipulation. It's it's not un, unreasonable for a person to say, hey, I have some questions about this. But what is the official response? What are we told? What does the narrative say? You cannot even think of this. You cannot speak of this. And, and you're seeing this. Network anchors are just jumping and, and throwing themselves in front of the bullet, so to speak, of any guest who says anything about having doubts about the election. I'm, I'm really surprised that they're not getting around to making people take a loyalty oath before they either go on media or before they can hold public office. Do you believe that the election was fair and square? Raise your hand. Say that this is the case here. You know, I, I don't know. I do agree with Kent McManigal. He says the most suspicious point in favor of there having been election funny business. Is that a safe euphemism? euphemism on a large enough scale to change the outcome. He says the most suspicious point is how desperate those on the winning side are to sweep the idea under the rug, to make it an off-limits topic, to ban the topic from conversation in any way they can get away with. Doesn't that strike you as curious as well? Look at all the effort going into this. Kent McManigal says it looks to me as though they already know and are afraid others will figure it out. And do what exactly? And this is a fair question. At this point, he says the most that would happen is for Biden's presidency to come with an asterisk in future fringe history books. He still has the power to do all the damage he can think of while he occupies the office, just like those who came before him, whether any of them were legitimately elected or not. He's not a big believer in elections. He says, I don't believe in or advocate mob rule. So as far as he's concerned, there never has been a legitimate election and there never will be. So he says, I'm not the kind of person they need to keep in the dark. It's all those they want to keep playing the rigged game. Those people have got to keep believing because if they were to become like me, the whole tower of Dunder Mifflin complaint forms would collapse in a jumbled heap. Well, he may be onto something there. I'm certainly not going to tell you that, uh, hey, if you aren't if you aren't questioning the election, that makes you a bad American in the same way that I would not tell somebody, hey, if you don't believe the government was in on 9-11, that makes you a bad American. And I, I pick that deliberately because I know it's a very divisive topic. I've seen people come to very loud disagreement, almost get physical over disagreement over, you know, who was behind 9-11. And for what it's worth, here's my take. We don't know everything about it. There are definitely some big questions that remain. But just because the questions remain doesn't mean we can say, oh, yeah, Israel was in on it. The Mossad, they totally were in cahoots with our government. And there were a lot of places where people dropped the ball, where um, there, there was awareness of, of some things that might have pointed towards danger. But you know what? Hindsight's always a lot better. And, and this is the part that I think we have to really pay attention to. Who was behind it has come to matter less than who has taken advantage of it and turned it into an excuse to expand government and, and you know, domestic spying and the whole extraordinary rendition of prisoners due process free, execution of people due process free. You know, all of this extrajudicial stuff in the name of we're just keeping you safe. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, this pains me to say this because this is going to sound like I'm saying I told you so. 
I'm not going to say I told you so. But I'm going to point out that uh, there are many voices that have warned and warned about the danger of prosecuting this war on terror over in the Middle East, where we send our troops in for reasons that are really not clear, where there, there is no clear connection to the well-being or safety of the American people. It's just, you know, the, the drone strikes and, and, you know, the killing, the deliberate killing of people at wedding parties and, and uh, collateral damage that has taken place. This is being done in our name. And it's being done by the national security apparatus, which that's the deal with the devil that to the citizenry made with the government following World War II. We'll keep you safe, but we're going to have to keep this in the dark. So the less you know about this, the better. People agreed to it. And now it is being taken to a very destructive end. And we're about to see those of you who supported this the loudest because it was killing Muslims and it's killing the radical jihadists over there. You're about to find out that because you allowed government to have that power or to exercise that power that is beyond its legitimate limits and powers, it can now be turned around and used on you. Why do you think there's all this talk about uh, we've got to we've got to address this extremism and, and domestic terrorism? They're using the laws which took government off its leash in the war on terror under George W. Bush and those who followed him. And it's now being turned inward and focused on, well, pretty much everybody who didn't support Joe Biden's presidency bid. Sorry, that's kind of a somber note. To be wrapping things up on, but this is why you have to be so careful with government. This is why it, the, the framework that the founders gave us when they called the federal government into existence listed the upper limits of its power. Why else would they have a constitution? If government could just make up things as, as it went along, they wouldn't need a constitution. If its powers were pretty much whatever it can get away with, again, they wouldn't have a constitution. We've let it slip out of control, and it's, it's coming back on us in ways that uh, we had not hoped. But some people saw it coming. What can you do? Well, my suggest is, my suggestion here is that you become somebody who cannot be played by those government powers. Take yourself off the chessboard as much as you possibly can. I'll let you figure out what that means. This is The Brian Hyde Show.